Good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to join me in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 will be our text. If you uh, don't have a Bible, then we would encourage you to follow along. You can find a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament, the very first book there is the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. It's September 11th. It's today. It's today. It's, I, I wonder if you remember uh, 15 years ago today where you were. Some of you weren't born. Um, it's interesting. I, I know very vividly where I was. There seems in each generation some significant thing that happens, whether it's World War II or, for me, September the 11th. I was in my office, and it was a beautiful Tuesday morning. And I walked from my office through a workroom, and my assistant, her name is Laura, she says, you, you need to come and see this, and she has a tear on her cheek. And I, so I went into what was at that time an open office with a TV in it, and along with the rest of the world watched as these events unfolded in, in somber and staggering fashion, trying to make sense of that day and those events. I realized... I realized that that day, September the 11th, 15 years ago, it was a day that changed our country. And it was a day that, um, to be honest, on September the 10th, 2001, I didn't realize how completely unaware I was, how naive I was, at just the presence of evil in our world and the presence of terrorism in our world. I just sort of blissfully went along with sort of life, never really concerned or thinking about these things. But along with you, I then began to learn about Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. I learned that apparently um, you can toiletries can be used to make explosive devices in airplanes. I didn't know that. I learned that. I learned that I needed to plan an hour longer to get to the airport so I could go through security. It is commonplace now. It wasn't then. You remember, it wasn't then. It's commonplace now, but we learned these things. And now, it seems daily, if not multiple times a day, we have ISIS on the front pages of our newspapers and our computer screens. And we are in the most bizarre election cycle that I have ever seen with the two most unpopular candidates in the history of our nation, with Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton. So then along maybe with you, we ask ourselves, what are are we as Christians to do? How, How are we to navigate through these moments? How are we to navigate through these times? And that's what I would like to spend our time on this September 11th thinking through. As we think through the realities of our world and our responsibilities as Christians. What does this mean for us? What does this look like for us? Because for several months now, I have been feeling, sensing, maybe you have too, this sense of, in my opinion, sort of suffocating fear that has been a part of our country and the rhetoric of our country. It's commonplace in election election times, I understand, for there to be fear and to, to plague on people's fears. But this seems different to me. Maybe it's just me. 
and I understand, you know, because from the, the right, then you say, well, if crooked Hillary wins, then the world is doomed, right? And from the left, if Donald Trump can possibly win, then the world is doomed. And either way, it seems like the world is doomed. And so we just go, oh, my goodness, here we are. And it's one thing in my mind for the, country, the, the, the nation to have a sense of and to talk that way. It's concerning to me when I hear it inside the walls of the church. When I sense the fear that has gripped the hearts of the people of God in increasing measure. And so here we are this morning because I decided that I didn't need friends anymore. <laughs> and I'll say from the beginning that I don't have the answers. My, my comments this morning are not meant to be exhaustive. My comments are not to, to this morning to be primarily political. They're meant to be pastoral, if you can understand that because I have concern for the church at large and I have a concern for you and for your hearts. And I recognize that in speaking on these things that I may offend some of you, I may offend all of you, but my intention is not to hurt or to offend, but to help and to heal. So let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Have you see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the field or into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will, will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn to your word and we ask that you by your spirit will open our hearts and open our eyes and our ears that we might have our lives calibrated by your word that we might be restored to a sense of trust in you and strength in you and we come to you asking that you will do this believing that you can and that you will in confident expectations, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think the first thing what we have here is Jesus. He's, he's teaching, and it's at the end of the, the most famous sermon in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. It's near the end, and he's talking about Jesus and his kingdom, God's kingdom. 
And, and I want you to hear his counsel this morning. I want you to hear the counsel of Jesus this morning. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life. Therefore, he says in verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Jesus has been teaching, and right before this, he's teaching them about money and about uh, not setting our treasures here on earth, but setting our treasures in heaven because the things of earth will pass away, but the things of heaven will go on forever. And then he turns his attention away from the things here towards tomorrow. And he's giving counsel to his disciples about what's coming, about tomorrow, the days that are ahead. And he's counseling them, and he's teaching them. And he says to his disciples, don't worry. Don't worry about the future. But of course, if you come here this morning and you find yourself riddled with worry and anxiety and fear, which many do, and many are, then for someone just to tell you to cut it out doesn't quite seem to work, does it? I'm, I'm afraid, cut it out. You know, stop it. Well, okay, um, is there any more? Yes, there's more. And he goes on to give us the rationale for why there is no need to worry. And first he says, we need to look at the whole of life. We need to look at the whole of life. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about your body and what clothes you'll wear. And we do worry about those things. We, you know that because you just look at the magazines. They're all about food or drink or travel or clothes. They, they're all about our bodies. It's all, that's the stuff we talk about. That's the stuff we worry about. We worry about those things. He says, don't worry about those things. The reason, because God knows you need them. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. And then he goes on and he says, look at, just look at the birds. They don't sow or they don't toil and they don't store up in barns, Right? and God takes care of them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Isn't, God knows you need these things. Take this, take, look at the nature, the nature of the whole of life. Don't you see how much more valuable they are? How you are than they are? And God takes care of the birds. Surely he will take care of you because you're much more valuable. Look at all of, God takes care of the whole of creation. Certainly he will take care of you and all of your needs. Don't, don't worry. God will provide. God will give you these things. His hand is not off the till of your life. His hand is not left the till of, of creation that he has made. No, he is sovereignly overseeing all of these things. So don't worry. He says that we're not to worry, not only because we need to look at the whole of life, but we also need to look at the nature of life. Verse 27, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So why do you worry about clothes or the flower? Just look at the flowers as they grow. They don't labor or spin, and yet even a Solomon, all of his splendor was not as wonderful as these. And if God will take care of the flowers that are passing, that will be thrown into the fire, surely he will take care of you. What good does worry do? That's what he says. Worry, you, you can worry all you like, but it's not going to add an hour to your day. 
It will steal hours from your day. It will steal hours of sleep from your night, but it will never add to them if you worry. So don't do that because God, because Jesus knows what you need. God knows what you need. Jesus says, worry can't help you. Worry is a waste of time. He says we need to look at the nature of life. And then thirdly, he says we need to look at the priority of life. But he says, so he says, don't, don't go after all these things. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Verse 32, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of this, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. Don't worry about that stuff because your heavenly father knows you need them. But the world, the society, that's all that they're running after. But don't run after those things. Seek after the kingdom of God. Your first priority needs to be the kingdom of God. And then when he is your first priority, all of these other things will be taken care of. All of these other things will be put in their place. When you seek first the kingdom, then everything else will be added unto you. And therefore, the chief drive of the people of God, Jesus is saying to his disciples then, and he's saying to his church now, the chief drive of the people of God is to seek the kingdom of God first, morally, socially, geographically, personally, spiritually. Seek the kingdom first, and then watch God add all of these other things. Take care of your needs. That's what he says. Jesus is talking about in his sermon, he's towards the end of his sermon, he's preaching about the nature of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And he says, don't worry. But we have what I think is, um, I don't know, the, the common language of our country and of our nation is to talk about God and country. And I believe there is a tension between those two things. I believe those two, there, there's a tension. So let me apply G, what Jesus says about Jesus and his kingdom with our understanding of God and country. In America, we have a tension between God and country. Now, there'll be some who will say there is no tension between God and country. They're in harmony with one another. I, I think we have a discussion to be had about that. But I think there is. I love our country, and I'm proud to be an American. At our house during the Olympics, we're one of those houses that yell at our TV screen, rooting on Michael Phelps as he swims for another gold medal. That's, we're, we're that type of Olympic watchers. I don't know about you. We watch the medal ceremonies too, so we can hear our anthem being played, so we can watch our athletes being crowned with the glory they deserve for their triumph. We are the type of family that go to Memorial Day services, not just to the barbecues. We go in order that we, we went to downtown Osseo to a Memorial Day service this past Memorial Day because it matters. We are the type of family that hold those who serve our country in high regard, whether in the military or whether in the police force or in the fire, those who keep us safe. I value the elected officials. My dad ran for Ward 4 city councilman for a number of years back in the day, not anymore. And I remember going door to door. I think we were pawns in his political game, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> I was cuter then. I'm the one who tears up when I watch the tributes of September 11th and for a staggering, rousing July 4th fireworks. 
tribute. I'm proud to be an American. And yet, as a proud American, I know that it is easy to, mis to misalign our priorities. It is easy to identify our country, identify more with our country than it is with our Savior and our Christ. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that I'd like you to think about with me. In so far as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. You said thank you for sharing that with us. He says, my earthly dearest, the things that I love, the things that I love that are here on earth. He says, when I put those things, whether it's country or whether it's cash or whether it's my house, whatever it is, it's my family. If there's something that I love here on earth and I put that in the place of God at the expense of God or instead of God, then I am not actually loving my earthly things. I'm idolizing my earthly things. I'm worshiping my earthly things. But he says, when first things are put first, when God is put first, then secondary things are not suppressed, but they are actually increased. So when God is put in his right place, when God is put in his right priority, then I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not worshiping those earthly things, but I can actually enjoy them all the more. I'm not suppressing the earthly things, but I can actually recognize them and enjoy them for what they are. That's what he's saying here. In other words... In order to love things rightly, we must love them in the right order. And when we prioritize our national loyalty above loyalty to God, we are not loving our country rightly, and both the, our love of God and our love of country will suffer. Our love of country give, gives rise to militarism and racism when it, is not subjugate, when it is not subordinate to the greater love of God and his people. We can easily, I think, find ourselves valuing compet our, our competition and conquest above compassion and selflessness that win our ultimate allegiance is to our country instead of the kingdom of God. But when we have things in right priority, rightly ordered desires and loves allow us for patriotism and a love of country but it prevents us from nationalism and idolization of our country. Patriotism and love of our country only become wrong and sinful when they become disor disordered, prioritized, or valued too highly than they deserve. But when we rightly order our loves, the things that we desire, that we love, when God is first and country comes after him, when we rightly order our loves, it does not require the abandonment of loves, but actually requires the proper prioritization. A country rightly loved will result in better civic engagement. A country that is rightly loved will actually, will actually result in better civic engagement. Here's what I mean. That instead of racism and discrimination, Christians can fight for just policies and international engagement. Instead of ultimate loyalty to certain leaders or political ideas, Christians can pray for guidance from a higher ruler. 
That instead of letting fear drive reactionary policies, Christians can find security in an omnipotent God and advocate for policies with wisdom that only he can provide. When Christians love their country and their God rightly, they can be far better citizens of both the earthly nations and the kingdom of heaven. When we have our orders or where our loves in right priority, then we become a better citizen. Then we become better people on not on not only on earth, but also for the kingdom of God. Does this actually affect the way that we vote? I think so. So this is where I start losing friends, I think. (laughs) Maybe I've already lost some, I don't know, but... My assumption is that for those of you who are here, most of us want to and desire to vote Christianly or in in a manner that honors God. I I believe that to be true about us and about, well, I hope it's true. And in these days, and in this particular election, I find this to be the most, it's always a tricky endeavor. I think it to be very tricky in these days. There's an Old Testament professor who works for Great Lakes Christian College. His name is John Nugent. And he says this, and it's, I think, a very important distinction. And I'll quote him several times and I hope you find it helpful. Many people who are attempting to vote Christianly are actually voting Christendomly. By Christendomly, I mean striving to retain or recover a collaborative relationship that Christians have long enjoyed with Western governments. Such collaboration began in the fourth century when the Ro- with the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire went from ignoring and persecuting Christians to tolerating and eventually embracing Christians as the state religion. And since then, believers have grown accustomed to promoting Christian values through civic mechanisms. In several places, Christians became, Christianity became the mandatory state religion. So, but Christendom in the United States has always been interesting because Christianity has never been the, the, the national religion, the official religion of our country. But civic leaders have exercised considerable liberty in applying Christian convictions to public governance, right? So this yielded a variety of benefits for us as Christian people, including the protection of Sundays as a day of worship, holidays on the civic calendar, clergy providing over civil ceremonies, chaplains in hospitals and the military, support of public education and the media, and generous tax tax exemptions for people of faith. Nugent goes on and says this, but there's nothing in scripture that requires the governments to bestow such favor. Christians simply convinced the authorities that it was in their best interest to do so. And likewise, nothing in scripture suggests that Christians ought to work their way into positions of civic power or otherwise influencing governing authorities. Nonetheless, this began to happen at a certain point and has long endured. Since the mid-20th century, the American experience of Christendom has been waning. Evidence of this is undeniable. The 
the desacralizing of Sundays, the secularization of holidays, overhauling marriage, exercising Christian evangelism, for, excising Christian evangelism from chaplaincy, disparaging Christian beliefs in education and entertainment, and attempting to withdraw tax privileges from religious institutions. Nugent continues, it's been demoralizing to lose our privileged status. It's the closest thing to persecution that many Christians have experienced. But what does this have to do with voting? My point is, many Christians confuse Christianity with Christendom. For them, to vote for, a me <clears throat> to vote for measures to retain or recover the vestiges of Christendom is to represent Christ and is to vote Christianly. So he says, this is the, these are the things that we've enjoyed, even though the Bible didn't mandate govern, govern, governments to give us these benefits. Yet as Christians, we've enjoyed these benefits. And so many Christians who go to the voting booth are voting in order to protect Christendom, in, but thinking that they're actually voting Christianly, is what he's saying. And the problem with this understanding is when you go to your Bible and you look at the life of Jesus... When we go to our Bibles, Jesus didn't come to wield power. Jesus didn't come to take places of authority. Jesus didn't come to, to, to be in a privileged place in society. But when we look at our Bibles, all of Jesus' disciples were waiting for the Messiah to come and to ascend to the, to the throne of King David. And they said, Jesus, when are you going to take power? And can we sit at the right and the left hand when you get there? Because we're ready. Because we are proven faithful. We're ready to go, Jesus. And they were frustrated with Jesus because he never went there. Because he didn't come to take power in that way. No, Jesus came according to Mark, to serve, not to be served. And Jesus came to give his life for others. And Jesus came to call a people to himself that would live lives that followed after Jesus the same way that he did. And eventually the church began to understand. Eventually the church began to understand the early church. And one last quote from our new friend, John Nugent, or at least mine. <clears throat> The earliest Christians believed that governing authorities presided over an older, an, an older order that was passing away. So government, they believed that the government was there, whether it was Rome or whomever, the government was there and that was a part of the old order that was passing away. And they believed that Christ had called the church to represent a new order that would never end. Seeking first this new order, God's kingdom, was their mission. It, it was their socio-political agenda. So they established churches in every city that served as embassies of God's kingdom, and they invited all the people to leave behind their old ambitions and to join them in seeking first God's kingdom as revealed in Jesus. And so, to vote Christianly, then is to participate in the electoral process in ways that seek first and bear witness to God's alternate kingdom. To vote Christendomly is to use the electoral process to retain and recover Christian privilege. And then he says in this election, as with any election, we must resist the urge to vote Christendomly. 
We are those who are supposed to use the electoral process in order to what? Seek first the kingdom of God, not just seek, seek first privilege, societal privilege that we've enjoyed, but to seek first the kingdom of God. So three things and then I'll be done. First, freedom. Freedom. For, the, for Christians, where the Bible does not give us clear directive, clear, doesn't give us uh, a clear command, then there is freedom. Then there is freedom. Voting in our country, voting is a freedom to be enjoyed, not an obligation to be enforced. There are people that would disagree with me on this, but I believe that it is a freedom that we are to enjoy, not an obligation that we are to enforce. So if you choose to exercise your freedom and vote, then you must vote your conscience. You must vote, seek to vote Christianly. And I want to say this because I've heard this over and over and over again, that the two candidates from the two primary parties that we have, um, you're, choosing from the, you're choosing from the lesser of two evils. If we're going to be Christianly, and if you have become convinced, I just want to, maybe that's just because you say, well, you're just over lunch and you're just having a conversation over with a coworker and you say, well, that's the lesser of two evils. I, I, I don't know, right? But friends, if you actually have become convinced that both are evil, if that is your conviction, then to be Christianly, never once in the Bibles will you see in this book, never once will it say, please promote evil. And if it is your conviction that both candidates from the major parties are evil, then you may think of us abstaining. Because never once to be Christian in our, in, our, in our actions is not to promote evil. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of you have come to that conviction or, and come to that conclusion. Because there are, there are a number of people who are Christian people, people that you will see in heaven, who will, as a matter of conscience right? As a matter of conscience, they will vote for Hillary Clinton. And there will be many people who you will see in heaven who are Christian people who will vote for Donald Trump. And in this whole process, there is freedom and there must be grace. There must be grace and there must be understanding. Because our bind is not primarily about our country or who we vote for. Our bind is Christ. And we must seek him first and the unity of his body. And we must think these, these, we must think these things out. And some will, as a matter of conscience, abstain or vote for a third party. But remember that voting is a freedom to be exercised, not an obligation to be enforced. And so, pray. And so, with clear conscience before God, go and, and vote, or don't, as a clear conscience before God. Second is fear. It's fear. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you find yourself confronted by worry and fear and anxiety because of things in your personal life, but also things in our country and where we are in these moments, then I would encourage you to, to along with the psalmist, to say to the Lord, God, search me, God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. 
That is, it is now time for you to be able to say, why is this? And ask some discerning questions to be able to present, actively come before God and, 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 and repent of your fear and work through your fear. I recognize that there are clinical, there's anxiety that some people deal with that are medical issues, I, that's, but that's not the vast majority of us when it comes to these things. So let me give you some, some guidance. Here are some questions that may be helpful for you to discern your own heart as you were to fill in these blanks. What I need most is, and just fill that blank in. What, what I feel I need most is this. What I want most is. What I want to avoid most is. What I feel most powerless about is. And what I am most concerned will happen is. Because when you answer these questions, and maybe you have more, they will begin to get at the source of your worry and your anxiety and your fear. We feel anxious when we don't get what we want or when we're concerned that we'll get what we don't want or the lack of control that's a part of that. And we need to come and we need to identify it and we need to present it before the Lord. And then we ask that we say, Father, because I fear you, it is my, I am coming before you asking that you will grant wisdom and grant understanding and that you will be able to help me with my worry. As we fear him and as we come into his presence and present our concerns before him. And then finally, freedom, fear, and faith. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder if God thinks that the things we worry about are cute. I do. I, a little bit like when my daughter, um, when my, my boys will take my daughter's toy and tell her, tell them, tell her that they'll never give it back to her. And then she'll just erupt in fear and anxiety and anger and she just erupts. And then she'll say, oh, and I said, what's wrong? They took it and they'll never give it back. Never give it back? Never? All you have to do is just come ask me and I'll go get it back for you. And we erupt in our world with things that are so significant and so important to us in our day and in our moment. And I wonder if God doesn't look down and say, really? Really? You have little faith? This election? This is the one? Have I not told you that the earth is my footstool? Have I not told you that I've created all of these things? Have I not told you? Did I make the nations rise and fall? Don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because worry, the way to overcome worry is not by looking back at what we once had or what we could have had or what we should, and to try to bring, no, it's to look forward knowing that we have a heavenly father who knows our needs and knows our desires and he promises that he will take care of his, his children and we know that his kingdom will not fail. Yes, in this world you will have trouble and I don't know what's in, in, what's in store for our future but I, as it relates to a country, but I do know what's in store for the kingdom because God has revealed it to all of us in his word and that we can take to the bank that we can trust and that needs to be the thing that grips our hearts and our trust in these moments and these day these days and this is what I so long for for you that we might rest in this place that yes you need to do what you need to do and you need to vote or not vote and you need to 
be a citizen. You need to, must. And when we prioritize the things of the kingdom first, it makes us better citizens in this world until he comes and restores all things. And so don't fear. Seek his kingdom. In this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world, he says. Let us take that into our hearts and allow it to work out the fear and the worry and allow it to make us better civil servants of this great nation in which we have the privilege of being a part. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I thank you that you are sovereign and I thank you for your sovereign rule and care over this entire universe and the earth in this election. Keep us from worry like so many in the world. Set our hope and our affections foremost on you and your kingdom. Spur us towards faithful action as citizens of both heaven and earth. Help us to trust in you at all times, especially when it's hard. And through this election, bring about your will for us and our country and for your kingdom and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.